0: Hello and welcome to the third edition of Imagining Freedom. I'm recording this podcast at a time when I think our freedoms are increasingly under attack and many people would say that's for a very good reason and I think it means that we're walking a very difficult line at the moment. I know that coronavirus is real and I know people who have suffered badly from it but I don't want this outbreak to be used as an excuse to panic people into losing our basic freedom. Yesterday I was standing in a queue for food and I saw a couple of police in uniform wearing high-vis jackets standing across the road. It seemed odd to see police just standing on a street in a low-crime area that is normally full of shoppers. It made me think of all the people who say, I'm not afraid of ID cards or fingerprints or whatever because I'm not a criminal, I've got nothing to hide. But the criteria for wrongdoing have been dramatically extended in the last few months. You can be fined for going out more than once a day or for getting on a train and going to another town. A woman from York was arrested at Newcastle and fined £660 for leaving home without a reasonable excuse. We are increasingly on a global scale, stepping into uncharted political territory. As I've said in previous podcast episodes, I don't think that imposing a lockdown is the best way to beat this disease. However, I'm fully cooperating with it because I know that I've made mistakes before and I don't have all the answers. But personally speaking, I think a much more sensible and less drastic solution might be the one that was suggested by Dr David Katz, who wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times on the 20th of March. I've been watching an interview with Dr Katz on YouTube where he expands on what he wrote in the New York Times article and he presents a really well-thought-out alternative to the lockdown strategy. It's really worth listening to, and I'll put the details in the show notes. David Katz is director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Centre, and he's a specialist in preventive medicine and public health. Katz favours a strategy that allows the vast majority of the population, who are likely to suffer only slight symptoms from the virus, to build up immunity, while providing extra protection for the elderly and the vulnerable. In his New York Times article, he wrote, So long as we we were protecting the truly vulnerable, a sense of calm could be restored to society. Just as important, society as a whole could develop natural herd immunity to the virus. The vast majority of people would develop mild coronavirus infections, while medical resources could focus on those who fell critically ill. Once the wider population had been exposed and, if infected, had recovered and gained natural immunity, the risk to the most vulnerable would fall dramatically. And that's just part of the article that he wrote. But instead, we have the situation where businesses are collapsing, people are being put out of work, and the IMF recently warned that the coronavirus pandemic will lead to the world's most severe recession since the, the Great Depression of the 1930s. And it all seems to be based on some extremely uncertain figures. Coronavirus seems to be a disease that is hitting the Western developed nations, Europe and the United States, much, much harder than other parts of the world. Japan, for example, which has the highest proportion of elderly people in the world, did not even declare a state of emergency until the 7th of April. And it's had no lockdown at all. That country has only reported 146 deaths so far, compared to Italy's total of more than 21,000 deaths. Israel has recorded 126 deaths from the virus, while its neighbour, Palestine, has only recorded two deaths. Israel's population is just over 9 million, while Palestine has almost 5 million people. So even when po- populations is taken into account, the numbers are vastly different. This calls into question the recording and the reporting of numbers of coronavirus cases and deaths. Many people have accused Japan of under-reporting its coronavirus statistics due to its government's hope that the 2020 Olympics, which Japan was meant to be hosting, would not be cancelled. But as someone who lives in the UK, it seems that the coronavirus statistics here have been overstated. This kind of fudging of the figures makes it very difficult to trust any reporting of this illness. The mainstream media reporting of this subject has been so sensationalist, so panic-inducing, that it's made me sceptical right from the start. Although in most people, this constant media sensationalism seems to trigger frenetic panic. We only have to look at the crazy panic buying buying that took place before the lockdowns for evidence of this. On the 1st of April... All the newspapers had the same headline that the UK had recorded its greatest daily rise in the number of deaths so far from the virus. The BBC's headline was exceptionally misleading. It said, Rush to test medics as UK daily deaths exceed 500. This really caught my attention because I'd read some heartbreaking accounts of some doctors and nurses who had sadly died from coronavirus after working long shifts to save lives. The headline implied that 500 medical staff might have died in a day. And in fact, later on, the headline was changed. And then when you read the report, it was saying that the overall number of COVID-19 deaths has exceeded 500. It said some 2,352 virus patients had died in hospital as of 1,700 hours on Tuesday, up 563 in a day, the latest figures show. The article sourced a tweet from the Department of Health and Social Care and it was those same figures that were behind all newspaper headlines on this. The Guardian was one of the newspapers that covered this story and it covered it in quite a strange way. The Guardian report said UK records biggest daily rise in coronavirus deaths. The UK has recorded its biggest daily rise in the number of deaths so far in the coronavirus outbreak. The UK hospital death toll rose by 563 to 2,352 on Wednesday, an increase of 31% on the total of 1,789 deaths reported the day before. As of 5pm on 31st of March, of those treated in hospital in the UK who tested per- positive for coronavirus, 2,352 had died. On Tuesday, the previous record day, there were 381 deaths and 3,009 cases declared across the UK. So from reading this, you tend to think, oh, 563 people have died of coronavirus in one day. That's the implication. But then at the end of the article, there's a very disjointed paragraph that seems to have been added as an afterthought. It says, However, the figures are not an accurate picture of the deaths within 24 hours as a number of deaths occur- a- announced in Wednesday's release occurred earlier in March. One of the deaths, for example, took place on the 15th of March. It seems really strange. We've gone from the BBC announcing rush to test medics as UK deaths daily deaths exceed 500 and all those newspaper headlines following suit to a number of deaths announced in Wednesday's release occurred earlier in March. One of the deaths, for example, took place on 15th of March. It's hard to know what to believe. And this isn't the only thing that's made me question the accuracy of reporting this disease. I started to notice that the BBC was increasingly reporting that people had died with coronavirus rather than from it. On the 12th of April, BBC News Online's main headline story reported A further 737 people have died with coronavirus in UK hospitals, taking the total recorded death toll to 10,612. And then a couple of days ago, I saw a really surprising post on the front page of BBC News Online. The headline was Coronavirus, how to understand the death toll. It's a really odd headline. almost seems as if they had to explain how we should understand their reporting of the death toll. And another surprising thing about this post is that the date on it was the 1st of April, which was almost two weeks before it appeared on the front page of the BBC News online website. This article was saying that the coronavirus figures are basically inaccurate it was actually spelling it out. It says the death figures being reported daily are hospital cases where a person dies with the coronavirus infection in their body. Because it is a notifiable disease, cases have to be reported. But what the figures do not tell us is to what extent the virus is causing the death. It could be the major cause a contributory factor or simply present when they are dying of something else. Most people who die with coronavirus have an underlying health condition such as heart disease or diabetes that may be more of a factor. For example, an 18-year-old in Coventry tested positive for coronavirus the day before he died and was reported as its youngest victim at the time. But the hospital subsequently released a statement saying his death had been due to to a separate, significant health condition and not connected to the virus. There are, however, other cases, including health workers and a 13-year-old boy from London who died with no known health conditions. The Office for National Statistics is now trying to determine the proportion of those deaths that are caused specifically by coronavirus. To me that says it all. The way these statistics are recorded and reported must be a huge factor in the enormous discrepancy between the number of reported cases in Europe and the numbers in Asia and the rest of the world. We're constantly told that we should only trust authoritative government sources, but how can we trust them when they are being fudged in this way and exaggerated in the news headlines? And why does the government feel the need to inflate these figures? This is really important because already we've had an unprecedented lockdown situation. The word lockdown originated from prison use. And we've had government legislation in the form of the emergency coronavirus bill, which was accelerated through Parliament unopposed by the so-called political opposition, and which removes some of the most important checks and balances that we have in the UK, such as the number of doctors required to approve someone for sectioning under the Mental Health Act, or relaxing the requirements for registering a death. You only need one coroner to sign a death certificate now instead of two. In my first podcast, I described how I had written to my MP objecting to several aspects of the bill and to the way it was being speeded through Parliament without scrutiny to be in place for two years. I wasn't the only one who wrote to my MP and the upshot was that an amendment was brought in to ensure that the bill would be reviewed in six months' time. I think this shows that ordinary people can make a difference in these matters and in some respects we get the government that we deserve. Most of us look at some remote politician and expect them to sort everything out for us. I think we need to take more responsibility for our own lives and I don't just mean going to work and looking after our families. If most of us were to start looking more closely at where our food comes from where the things we buy come from, and even where our tax money goes. We might actually find it an empowering exercise. I remember listening to an interview on the radio with a member of a rock group a few years ago. He was describing how, when they were at the height of their fame in the 1970s, they were jetting around the world playing gigs and living the rock and roll lifestyle. And eventually they had an interview with their accountant. The accountant said, I never get to see you guys these days. You're all over the place. There's so many bills that need to be paid. Why don't you sign these blank checks and I'll see that your bills get paid. Then you can just go off and enjoy yourselves. And that's what they did. And a few months later, the group discovered that half their money was gone and their accountant was nowhere to be seen. I often think about that interview because it seems to be a good analogy for the way that many of us live our lives these days. It's not because we're jetting around the world or living the rock and roll lifestyle. It's because most people are run off their feet, trying to look after their families and their pets and earning a living and increasingly working very long hours. And meanwhile, we're trusting many aspects of our lives to these so-called authorities and assuming that they have our best interests at heart. If we allow a situation to continue where we, as individuals, have increasingly less say in the way we are governed, We could suddenly find ourselves trapped in a very nasty situation where there's no chance of escaping to another country. I sometimes see the way we're going with the increasing control over our movements and surveillance over our lives as quite similar to the way that sea creatures are caught in these enormous purse sign nets. The nets are so big that these creatures not just fish but turtles, dolphins and other sea creatures continue to swim about completely oblivious to the fact that they are enclosed by a huge dragnet until it starts to tighten around them. And by then, it's too late. So I do think it's important to stay politically active. But by political activity, I don't mean just wandering along to the polling booth every five years and putting a cross in the box at whichever is the least worst of all the candidates. I started voting none in Westminster General Elections a few years ago because I think the two-party first-past-the-post system is totally flawed. The way that the constituencies are allocated makes the voting results completely skewed towards the southeast of the UK. I often get faced with shocked reactions from people when I tell them this. They seem to think that just one more vote could make the difference between paradise and dystopia. Have they not noticed that the policies of each of the two parties that actually have a chance of getting into power are almost identical? That when politicians take office, they often do exactly the opposite of what they said they would do when they were trying to win your vote. Voting none, if you do it properly, without spoiling your ballot paper, counts as a recognised vote, and it's a protest vote. There's a good website about voting none at www.votenone.org.uk By voting none, I am withdrawing my consent from a system of government that is deeply flawed and is often corrupt. The consent of the governed is a very important political concept, which grew out of the theories about the social contract that were developed in the 17th and 18th century by political philosophers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, and in France, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The social contract was enshrined in the United States Declaration of Independence, and it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit in the past few years because democracy has become such a farce. But I've never been sure whether the social contract in reality had any clout. The coronavirus crisis is showing me just how important the social contract or consent of the governed actually is. I'm starting to see it in action And I'm realising that even dictators like Hitler paid attention to it, at least indirectly. In a way, it's an example of how powerful we, as individuals, really are. But it's up to us how we use that power. If you're in power and you want the consent of the governed to work in your favour, one thing is really important. You have to get control of people's minds. And that is the key. Lockdowns, like the ones we're currently seeing, could not work if people didn't cooperate with them. People are cooperating, and the main reason they're cooperating is because they are trusting what the mainstream media and the government says. The reason for the crazy level of censorship we've been seeing, as I described in my last podcast, is because the authorities are very aware of the importance of controlling people's minds. Because without controlling the narrative they won't get that cooperation that allows millions of people to consent to their daily lives being brought to a standstill. Anyone who dares to voice an alternative strategy for dealing with this disease outbreak is likely to get shouted down, at least from some sections of the population, no matter how well-informed and well-thought-out their ideas are. And this is because of the levels of hysteria that have been built up by the mainstream media. Amid all this hysteria, it's easy for sane, informed voices like those of David Katz to become lost or ignored, or even worse, twisted and misinterpreted. I really recommend watching the YouTube interview with Dr David Katz to the end. Details are in the show notes. Or if you're busy, just play The Last Five Minutes, where he answers a tough and complex question in a very interesting way. But I don't want to push my view down your throat. There are so many different people giving different opinions and ideas about this crisis. And I just feel that a very narrow selection of people are being listened to and are leading the agenda. If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you want to make a comment or download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening.